Good morning, everyone. Um, we've been going through a series on the church for the last six weeks. Um, I'm finishing up today, and my topic is unity in diversity. Um, a few of us read a couple of books on the church there last year or earlier on this year. They were very good. Um, one in particular I found helpful for some of the stuff in this sermon was by the authors Hansen and Lehman, and it was called Rediscover Church, and I'd recommend it highly to everyone to read. But um, yeah, so we're looking at the subject of unity and diversity. Jason started us off with this, and this is the central message of all of, this, uh, all of these sermons, is that church is family. We have, uh, when, we, when we become born again, we get a new father, we get new siblings, brothers and sisters. And it's a close-knit family based on love, which binds everything together, Paul says in Colossians. Binds everything together in harmony. So today we're looking at the topic of how do we keep unity uh, in diversity? And we'll be looking at um, Paul's uh, passage there that Ariana read. Uh, we'll be looking at a few others as well. But let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, we just thank you that we can come here in your name, uh, a people redeemed from sin, uh, a people who have uh, the love of God and the Spirit of God dwelling in them, a people who have an advocate in heaven fighting our case when we do fall short of the glory of God and sin in our lives. So, Father, we're looking at this very subject today of tension um, in the churches, um, churches that can be diverse but have no unity, churches perhaps that can have unity but little diversity. So, Father, help us to wade through this subject today. Um, Father, help this material to help uh, a few people, if not all people in the church, Lord. Um, I've been so blessed um, by looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians over the last two weeks for the 10 to 10 study I did last week, Lord, and I'd just like to thank you for that, uh, for teaching so many great things and um, so many gospel-centered truths uh, in that book. So, Father, we pray and we leave this sermon in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some of us like to follow maybe team sports here. I'm, I'm not a great team sport follower. I used to love playing sports, but I kind of look at team sports, especially big finals on big days now, rather as in a kind of a twisted way as a social experiment. I love when there's two really evenly uh, matched sides going helter-skelter to win the prize. And often when you have, you know, really talented players on both teams, there can be very fine margins in it. And it often comes down to, to character, and I don't mean biblical character, but I mean perhaps the most resilient team, the team that can take the pressure most. And as we say in Irish, when it gets to boiling point, you can only, the best thing to rely on for a team to carry on in victory past the line is a team that can stay united. Because it's the easiest thing when you have maybe a high point in a match, a critical hinge point in a match, where it can go either way for either team. It's a critical that the team remain united. The minute kind of um, shaming or giving dirty looks or mouthing at other players comes in, you know it's a downhill slide from then. The other team, even though it could still be evenly matched, will have the winning hand eventually because they can remain united. And this also applies to all walks of life, whether you're working in a kitchen staff or whether you're working in a big company. The people that can pitch their various talents together as a united team and stay united will always 
do well. They will always excel at whatever they're doing. And it's the same in our churches when you have God-given people or God-given talents given to people who work for the good of the church to glorify God, that will always be victorious. So as we look around here at, um, amongst ourselves here in the church today, we can, we can say that Galway City Baptist Church, we're a blessed church because we're a very diverse church. There's people of different languages, nations, cultures, outlooks, even sporting allegiances. Mark is not here, but I was going to slag him for supporting Arsenal. But there's all sorts of different allegiances here to various things, even worldviews that are probably different to one another, maybe different to the person who's sitting beside you. But yet, the church is built on unity. So I'd like to ask you to ask yourself this question. You know, as you think about yourself, a God-saved sinner, what can you do to offer, or how can you build up unity in this church, Galway City Baptist Church, to give God the glory? Now, before people think that I'm making the connection that to be um, a united church, we have to model ourselves on strategies that the world uses, for example, sports teams. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, if you look at the most victorious or the most united agencies in the world or organizations or companies or sports teams, they often model themselves or take stuff unknowingly from the Bible, from this book that we're so lucky to have. There's so many wise things in the Bible. If you look at the best football teams or the best soccer teams that are playing all over Ireland and England today, they'll probably be, be, be given the same pep talk in the changing room. Lads, we're a team. We're united. Let's sacrifice for one another. Let's suffer for one another. They're all biblical teams. They're all God-saturated character, character attributes. Our God suffered for us. Our God sacrificed for us. It's the most noble thing that we can do as, as humans to put our lives and our time and our energy on the line. So, what the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at, we're going to take a very big wide-angle view, and I hope this is not too dry. Bear with me for a while. At um, some of this material I was reading in this book, I just thought it was, it, was, it was too good to leave out. I hope it's not too dry. But the world today seems to have two kind of outlooks. And initially, see what you make of them. One of them is, and we all know this, the world celebrates diversity. Many different types of diversity. It's, it's almost the most noble thing that you can give yourself to nowadays. It's a cause. It's almost you can be a rebel for diversity. There's all sorts of uh, rebels for di diversity out there. You can have people who, who, who root for ethnicity, for nationality, for gender, and increasingly nowadays for sexual orientation. These are held up as the ideals. And if you had a room full of people like this, and they would look around at one another, and if they saw the same color, people sitting in the same room, they'd say, this is wrong. This is immoral. And then you have another view that's prevalent in the world today where they celebrate, ironically enough, uniformity. They want everything to be the same. People might say, oh, come on, no, that's not. It is true in many parts of the world still. For example, if you lived in some parts of, of Asia, you'll have philosophies that celebrate uniformity. If you're not from the same caste, if you're not from the same tribe, you're outside, you're left outside. Or what about a remote territory with one economic class, our ethnicity and strangers are regarded with superstition? Or think of people here, I'm not sure have we any of them here today, but people who came from strict political regimes, like maybe in former Russia, 
um, and they had to show absolute solidarity uh, to a particular um, to a particular religious, perhaps. It was bordering on religious, but it was political uh, uniformity. If you're not in, you're not with us. It was all extremely tribal. So if you were to put people like this into a room, it might look something like this. If they would turn to someone beside them and see that they had a different politics or a different political view, this would be anathema. This would not be good. It would feel wrong for them. And again, it would feel immoral. Now, these two perspectives in the world today, they might seem to be kind of pushing against one another, but they're not. They have one big thing in common. Can you spot it? They're creating community by excluding others. If you're not the same thinking as us, the same caste as us, you're out. You're not in. If you don't have the same church, if you don't have the same views that we have in, the same, in this church, you're different. It all becomes very, very tribal. If you have different political views, different worldviews, you're not in, sorry. But you know what, when you actually dig underneath all of this, particularly the diversity side of it, you'll see there are strange contradictions. For example, and we all know this and we laugh about it, but it's so true. We can see today that people claim to be diverse. They claim to be tolerant of many, many different worldviews. And yet, they'll absolutely accept no intolerance to their tolerance. In other words, their motto is, intolerance will not be tolerated. <laughs> We're a tolerant people as long as you abide by our worldview and our opinions. So the, that's a very prevalent view in the world today. Now, where am I going with this? Well, the problem is that Christians, and that's us in this room, we are privy to this particular, these particular philosophies all around us. We are, we are seeped in them day in, day out. And like it or not, unknowns to it or not, they're infiltrating our minds and our thinkings. Paul says in Romans, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But there's no doubt that we are taking this cultural baggage into the church with us. Even in our conversations, we slip into sometimes speaking like the world does. They affect our relationships. They affect our thinking. And they affect, unfortunately, our church life as well. You might have someone says, well, look, I don't like the preaching style of that church. I don't like the music. I don't like the skin color of the people, the political views that some of them have, their worldviews. I don't like the seating arrangement. Hey, I can move. That's my right. After all, in today's world, it's my choice. I'm the most important thing. In today's world, the individual is the most important thing. It's the, it's the kind of the fashion we see it on our advertising campaigns on television. You know, you're worth it, aren't you? the urge to self-promote, the phenomena of celebs, influencers, and selfies, they're all around us, and they're in the church. So this tension between the world and the church has always been the case. We saw today, um, when Ariana read that passage from the first letter to the Corinthians, we see many examples of how the world had influenced the members that were in that church, how divisions had arisen, how sin was being committed in the church, and the weird thing was, in this particular church, which was a godly church, sin was even being tolerated. And we see that Paul was very firm in his letter. He said a number of things to them earlier on in the letter. He said, number one, you're not maturing in the faith. You're arrogant, he said. And your gatherings even, he said, designed to glorify God, are actually causing one another to commit sin. 
There's no doubt that the Corinthian church either didn't buy into Paul's idea of church being family, or else they didn't quite understand it. Now, the thing about it is, the thing that upset Paul most was that these Corinthians were washing or airing their dirty laundry in front of a watching world. This is what upset him a lot. How the world must have enjoyed to see these Christians bickering, how they must have enjoyed seeing the, work, the, you know, the, the name of God being dragged through the mud. And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Can it be, he says, that there is no one wise enough amongst you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, brother goes to law against brother, and that before the unbelievers? Now, I'm reading from the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. A lot of the other translations don't use the word brother here, or only use it sparingly. In this particular version, which seemingly is the most faithful to the original language, it's used four times, brother. Now, some of you might be saying, well, what's the big deal with brother? You see, Paul says this, and this goes over our head today in the Western world. We miss how serious Paul is here. Because Paul's, what he's doing here is he's using language that cut much deeper than what we understand today by using the word brother, adelphos. So, to Mediterranean siblings, when Paul addresses them as brothers, it means that they were meant to be acting as family, but they weren't acting as family. They were acting as individuals. They were importing the world's cultural um, norms into the church because the most important thing in those days for the church was to honor the family. The family was, took precedence over the individual. And Paul is saying, look guys, you're not acting like brothers. You're not acting like Adelphos. You're acting like the world and unbelievers are watching. And he continues in verses 7 to 8, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. See how annoyed he is. Again, see how he responds? He responds actually with the gospel. Because in verse 7, a few verses before, he had said, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul is saying, look at, there's division amongst you, there's quarrels amongst you. It's all based on your pride and your arrogance. But Christ died for that. He died for this sin. So put it away. Now we can look at the Corinthian church, and it was one diverse church. There was Jew and Gentile there. Again, we fail to appreciate the differences and the tensions that there was between the Jew and the Gentile. There were people with many gifts in that church, people who could preach, people who could teach, prophets speaking in tongues. There must have been an almighty diversity of worldviews there as well, seeing that they were people of Corinth. And yet there was no unity in their diversity. This was not good. See, the pagan culture was pushing in hard on the Corinthian church. In fact, I mentioned celebs earlier. The celebs in those days were the orators. If you were an orator in Corinth in those times, you had made it. You went on the, on the, on the speaking circuit, you made loads of money. You gathered fan clubs, you gathered people who were loyal to your point of view, who boasted 
about your speaking prowess, etc., etc. And this had been imported. This cultural fault had been imported into the church. And this is the second mess that Paul had to try and clear up in the church. He says that some of these factions seem to boast of their superior wisdom, and Paul writes passionately in verses 26 to 29 in 1 Corinthians. Track forward with me to 26, 29. Paul says, again, look at, he asks them and he reminds them of their calling, that the fact that they're called into the family of God. He says, brothers, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is love and despised in the world, even things that are that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And verse 29 is key, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The unity, of the, king, the unity that the kingdom promotes finds its basis in the cross of Jesus Christ, in nothing else. Not the eloquence of human words, Paul says, not in the influence or position or the force of a human personality. Paul answers all of the rest of the Corinthians' disunity, the divisions that were in the church, with the same approach. Their sexual immorality, the abuse of spiritual gifts, the offering of, of meat to idols. He answers them the same way. He answers them by reminding them of their calling. He reminds them of the gospel. But let's not one, forget one thing, though, before we start um, tut tutting the Corinthian church. They were a godly church. Uh, in chapter 1, or in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul reminds them, but you were washed, he said. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We were talking last week in this church about uh, revenue, about audits, and um, whatever the attitude you have or the view you have on the state's uh, revenue gathering services, the auditors and the tax collectors in Jesus' time were probably the most hated and reviled people that you could meet. And the funny thing is, Jesus chose Matthew as one of his apostles. Isn't it funny? One who was not in their tribe, so to speak. One who was absolutely on the periphery of society, hated by all. A collaborator with the Romans. Uh, someone who was just milking the normal Jew on the street in Jerusalem dry. And yet Jesus picks Matthew as an apostle. And because he wasn't in the Pharisees' group, he wasn't in the tribe, he didn't subscribe to that mantra, we will be tolerant. The Pharisees said to him and berated Jesus for this. They said, why, to the apostles, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied and he said, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, many people today think that people who come to churches have it all together. You know, maybe people even like themselves, if you're lucky enough to have it together. <laughs> no one has it together. To an outsider, though, people can come in, and look at the church and think, well, gee, all these people are so happy. They're all so together, aren't they? Well, people are really good at hiding their struggles. 
people are really good at putting on a public face. Churches are full of hurt people. Churches are full of people who are embarrassed even uh, to air their hurt or to reveal their pain because they think that everyone else has it sorted, has it figured. And this is not true. Everyone hurts in a church. Everyone hurt in that church and everyone hurt in the churches in the future. Apart from Jesus, no one in a church can have fellowship. Apart from Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners in Jesus' name could have never fellowshiped, could have never had unity together. Christ has always attracted the lowly, the broken, and the hurt. He builds up unity where there's disunity. He calls sinners and he fellowships with them. He has always been restoring souls for his name's sake. What a God he is. There's no other God like him. He chose Matthew, a tax collector, to build his church. And the funny thing was, on the other end of the tribal spectrum, people who cannot be tolerated, the zealots or the zealots, he picked Simon. Can you imagine the conversations that the two, those two men, Matthew and Simon, would have around the campfire about the grace of God and how he picked them up from their sin and their little narrow point of view and showed them the magnificence of his kingdom and the great plans that he had for them. God's plan from the beginning, though, was to have a diverse church. Our God is not tribal. He promised Abraham way back in Genesis that he would be the father of many nations. And we see this brought about in Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, a verse that's often quoted in this church. After this, this is John speaking when he was are caught up into heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What a more fitting picture of a diverse people, a diverse people united in Christ. As the authors that I referred to earlier put it, and I like this, he says, churches are fellowships of difference. Isn't that great? We're fellowships of difference. And so it is with us here in Galway City Baptist Church. We are redeemed sinners, but we still sin, don't we? And anywhere where you have sinners, you're going to have tensions, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have strife, strife and failures. We are all guilty of it. I was telling someone earlier on, if you get to know me, you'll get to know my faults as well. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know what? If it's God's will to have a united but diverse church, how can we reduce tension so that we can keep the unity? I mean, is there some sort of strategy that we can use to build unity in the church? I mean, that would be good, wouldn't it? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Verses 1 to 6. I think Paul answers this here. Again, notice actually in verse 1 there, he uses the same approach as he used to the Corinthians. He reminds them of their calling in verse 1. But in verse 1, anyways, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There he is again. He reminds them of the gospel. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here's the key eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you spot it there? Is there a strategy that we can use to build up unity in the church? Well, Paul seems to think that there isn't. What he does say in verse 3 is, he says, that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of grace. In other words, the unity is already there because the Spirit indwells the church, indwells every believer. So we can't have a team huddle like a Sunday morning football team and psych ourselves up to build up the unity and create unity in the church. It's already there. All we have to do is recognize it and maintain it. Now, some might think, well, how can we maintain it then? Well, I think Paul gives us some very helpful um, verses in chapter 3, or sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, verses 1 to 17. And I'd, I'd suggest when you get home at some stage today, maybe read this yourself slowly. It's a wonderful passage. I've been looking at it for the last number of weeks. Paul says in the first verse, going against the culture, and let's remind ourselves, we have to kick against our culture as well. He says, set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, Paul is kind of saying, think about heavenly things. Let God change the affections of your heart. And the affections that you have for worldly things, let him turn them to heavenly things. The second thing that Paul tells us there, I think, is he gives us two not-to-do lists. The first one is in verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, he says. And then he gives us a second list in verse 8. He says, But you now must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All these things discourage unity. And the third thing, Paul says in verse 12, he gives us one to-do list. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. And this is key, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven, so you must also forgive. Now the Lord has forgiven us if we're Christians. How has the Lord forgiven us? Because it says here, as the Lord has forgiven, so you must also forgive. The Lord has forgiven us completely. He's put our sin away from us. It's, it, I think it's Isaiah that says he doesn't remember our sin anymore. It's as far from the east to the west. He doesn't forgive us grudgingly. <laughs> he forgives us completely. And he never revisits it. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I, I can bear testimony of that in my own life. People that I have had arguments or fallouts with, it's the hardest thing in the world to forgive. And it's even harder to forgive as God forgave. Now, there's another sermon on that. We won't look at that today, but that to-do list, you could think and mull and meditate over it for hours. In verse 11 of Colossians there as well, we can see that Paul is pointing out that in God's church, there is unity and diversity. In verse 11, he says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. The same thing he said in Ephesians. 
by the way, we are not able to carry out any of these instructions unless we're walking in the Spirit, letting God work in us, keeping focused on the cross, and not by our own power. Uh, Pastor David Guzik said this. I think it's very good. Some people think of the church as a pyramid with the pastor at the top. Others think of the church as a bus driven by a pastor or driven by, driven by the pastor who takes his passive passengers where they should go. But God wants to see the church as a body where every part does its share. And this is reflected in that classic passage of 1 Corinthians again, chapter 12, verses 12 to 30, some of which Adam preached on last week, where Paul compares the church with a physical body. And he's saying that we're all members in this physical body. And that if you take one member away, the other members will notice it missing. It's crucial. Every member is, is crucial. Even seemingly insignificant parts of the body. In verse 24, Paul summarizes beautifully. He's speaking now about the spiritual body. So it's chapter 12, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Chapter 12, verse 24, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there, be may, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now listen to this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What if you're sitting in a church and you find yourself in the company of a tax collector or a zealot or maybe someone with a different point of view, maybe a different worldview? What if division comes up between you and someone else in the church? Tension. Now in today's consumer individualistic philosophy, it's so easy just to get up and walk and look for another church, to sort of unfriend someone, so to speak. But it's only by the testing of our faith in situations like this, where we're given ourselves opportunities to forgive or be forgiven, where we're given our ourselves opportunities to endure suffering, like Paul did with the Corinthians. He said it was better if his own rights were put aside, everything for the gospel. It's only in situations like this that our spiritual muscles can be exercised, can be strengthened. Now, it's easy to say this sort of thing, isn't it? But it's very hard to do it. And we all struggle with this. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 9, verse 12, what we endure anything, he said, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul was primarily concerned with the gospel, and so should we. The gospel was Paul's answer to any division in the church. It was his first port to call, reminding people of the gospel. Paul realized, of course, as we also read in that, for, uh, that Colossians chapter, that he was being renewed after the image of the Creator. And a part of this is long-suffering. <laughs> Another thing that's not easy to do, this idea of having the power to take revenge but setting it aside for the good of the gospel. This works as a powerful witness to a watching world because it's so counter-cultural. This sort of sacrificial love Christians should have for one another. This long-suffering 
And you know what? This will get noticed by the world because it points to Jesus. And it's fueled by the love of Jesus. It cannot be fueled by anything in us. As Paul says in that great chapter on love, chapter 13 of the same letter, 1 Corinthians, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And John says we love because God first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is, this is the message on the lips of every Christian. This is what we believe in. This is the gospel. So let's now thank God and remind ourselves once more that we are united as a fellowship of difference in this church. And let's give praise and thanks to him in prayer. Father God, we are a needy people. We are redeemed sinners, Lord, but we still struggle with sin. Oh, Father, help us to recognize our sin when we walk roughshod, perhaps, over our brother or our sister. Help us to be a people who um, try and instigate forgiveness, that make moves to bring reconciliation uh, when we do upset one another, Lord, and we all do. Either omission or commission, Father. Either things we do or things we should do. Lord, help us to be a people that are lowly, long-suffering. Uh, help us to be meek. Help us to be seeped in the gospel. Help us to be willing to help one another. Help us to rejoice with one another and to cry with one another. Help us to act as a unit that would glorify you, um, that would see your light shine in our lives, that would encourage us when we see these things happening, Lord. Father, help us um, even today to recognize our diversity Help us perhaps to move outside that comfort zone that we might have in this church. Help us to try and get, a greater, get to know a greater pool of people. Help us to try and get to know people who are perhaps very unlike us, perhaps have different worldviews, different cultures, different nations, different languages. Lord, it's all for your glory. It won't be easy, Lord. We are so comfortable in what's familiar with us. Some of us more than others. But Father, help us recognize that everyone in this church has been here because you have called them. And that we are here for a reason. And that we are here to show that you have united us in Christ. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.